Welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with my friend and comrade Derek Davison. And I am coming to you from beautiful Southern California. And I'm very happy to be bringing you the news. And Derek, he, his smile is so wide right now. I don't even know how to describe it. From yes, ear it's to incandescent. Ear. I'm, <laughs> it's I'm incandescent. vibrating with positive energy and pleasure. Um, all right, Derek, let's start, of course, with Gaza. And why don't we start with the uh, various U.N. votes that have recently occurred? Uh, yeah, it's probably it makes some sense to start here. I don't want to uh, minimize what's actually happening in Gaza. I'm not sure there's much new to talk about in, in the sense that it's all pretty much the, the same grim story that we've been covering. It's constant bombardments. Israeli ground invasions, lots of people dying, starving. We can get into some of that uh, in a bit, but but let's start off the battlefield with uh, what's been happening at the United Nations. Uh, the UN Security Council considered a resolution calling for humanitarian ceasefire on Friday uh, of last week. The United States, to no nobody's surprise, but to everybody's horror or most people's horror, vetoed uh, that resolution. The vote was 13 to 1, uh, with the U.S. being the one, but the veto uh, sticks. The U.K. abstained, uh, so the U.S. was quite literally on its own here in its uh, willingness to uh, preserve uh, the war, even from the ineffectual enforcement of the U.N. Security Council. The debate then moved into the General Assembly, which doesn't always happen, but the General Assembly uh picked up the idea of a ceasefire uh, and on Tuesday voted overwhelmingly in support of a ceasefire resolution uh, of the uh, 193 members of the uh, UN General Assembly. 153 voted in favor. Only 10 were opposed, uh, including the U.S. and Israel. So it was pretty lopsided vote. Uh, of course, this doesn't mean anything. Nothing that the UN General Assembly does is actually enforceable. Uh, really, nothing the UN does is enforceable unless somebody wants to enforce it. But the General Assembly is, you know, definitely not binding. But it does indicate uh, a, a not just significantly lopsided view of this conflict, but it indicates some movement. Uh, the uh, the previous. UN General Assembly vote on a ceasefire resolution, uh, which I think took place in late October or around kind of October, early November, uh, was 120 to 14 uh, with significantly more abstentions, 45 as compared to 23 in this latest vote. So there is a steady movement of, of international opinion away from not just supporting the war, but even, uh, you know, being so kind of shocked by what's happened here, uh, that that countries are willing to brave the risk of uh, pissing off the United States to express their uh, their opposition. So, uh, you know, a lot of isolation for the U.S. and Israel, which uh, apparently doesn't matter, uh, although the, we're supposedly in this uh, contest for hearts and minds around the world to get everybody on the page of freedom and, and justice and democracy. Uh, but uh, we're not exactly uh, doing a very good job of it, let's say. 
So um, also with Gaza, uh, what has a friend of the pod, Jake Sullivan, been doing? He just visited. So I'm sure a lot of progress was made and uh, pieces on the horizon. Well, it's, I mean, it's it's amazing uh, what one committed civil servant can do. No, uh, yeah, Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, arrived uh, in Israel on Thursday to meet with senior Israeli officials, including Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and the Defense Minister Yoav Gallant carrying apparently a message that uh, the Biden administration uh, is maybe running out of patience a little bit here, or certainly the the rest of the world is running out of patience. His message was, uh, you've got weeks, uh, not months, to wrap up at least this uh, very intense and casualty-heavy phase of the Gaza campaign. Uh, The Israelis, as far as I can tell, told him to uh, stick it, uh, that they're going to do what they want and they don't care what the international fallout is. They have said, uh, and Gallant has said uh, many times in, in uh, recent days or several times in recent days, that they, they do envision a transition of some kind from uh, the, uh, as I say, the kind of heavy casualty, heavy bombardment phase of this to something less intense. Um, I don't know what that's going to look like. And it's possible that what it will look like is essentially teams of uh, Israeli soldiers, IDF units, kind of roaming around Gaza looking to mop up any Hamas units or uh, Hamas fighters or other militants that they encounter, which sounds like it would be less intense from the standpoint of uh, they wouldn't be doing consistent airstrikes throughout Gaza, uh, but these guys would probably be on a hair trigger. So I think the potential for high casualties would remain nevertheless. Uh, but that seems to be one possibility here for what a less intense uh, phase of this may be. The Israelis are, are saying in unison that they envision several months uh, remaining in this conflict. Again, uh, maybe only a few weeks in, in the current uh, in its current configuration, but they envision it's going on for uh, for several months. And of course, there's still a big gap between where the U.S. Uh, and the Biden administration have been in terms of what happens after uh, the military operation is over and what the Israelis are talking about, which sounds like essentially a, a restoration of Israeli occupation um, and possibly the uh, the ethnic cleansing of Gaza under some voluntary, you know, uh, evacuation uh, kind of gloss, but um, you know the the U.S. has has been um, pretty committed or pretty rhetorically at least strident about uh, rejecting either of those things. Well, rhetoric is all that matters, so I'm sure things will be fine. Uh, let's talk about the humanitarian situation in Gaza right now, which um, is, is abysmal, but maybe you could provide us with some of the uh, horrible details. Yes. I mean, we're approaching a point where, as, as you know, as shocking as, as it's all been to watch, uh, you know, 18,000 plus people and probably plus plus, given uh, the difficulties in actually assessing casualties at this point, but, uh, you know, at least. Uh, I think we're approaching 19,000 at this point in terms of the official uh, death toll. Uh, that many people killed in the really kinetic uh, aspects of this campaign. We're approaching the point where uh, relief agencies, the UN, uh, just observers are, are noting that uh, you're going to start to see maybe more people dying of disease, of hunger, of you know the, the things that are 
connected to the deprivation of, of humanitarian, basic humanitarian needs. Uh, you know, as many people, if not more people dying of that kind of thing as are dying from bombs and, uh, and shelling and, and, you know, being shot and so forth. Um, the UN estimated over the weekend that about half of Gaza's population is now in essentially severe, uh, food shortage, severe food insecurity. They are, you know, I feel like I'm repeating myself, but the Israelis have been cordoning civilian populations off into ever smaller uh, zones. They've been, you know, kind of, they've got this evacuation scheme that's supposedly, you know, meant to protect civilians, but you're pushing people, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of people into these ever smaller areas that just aren't uh, fit for, for, you know, to, to uh, contain that size of a population. Uh, and the longer that this goes on, obviously, and if you're talking about months, I don't imagine the Israelis are going to let anybody go home in that period of time. And certainly uh, there's not much left to go home to because they pulverized ten, hundred, tens of thousands of the, at this point of, of buildings, homes, apartment buildings, uh, you know, a lot of the residential areas of Gaza are in rubble now. So there's nothing for people to go home to. Uh, so this is this is just an extended uh, crisis. Uh, and it's only going to get worse. Now, there have been some, there was a little bit of movement on the relief front. The Israeli government opened uh, its southern checkpoint into Gaza, the Kerem Shalom checkpoint, uh, which is um, really equipped to handle truck traffic. It's equipped to, to, to deal in commercial transit. So it's it's better suited than the Rafah crossing into Egypt, which is really meant for pedestrians uh, more than anything else. But uh, it's more equipped for, for handling heavy uh, truckloads coming into Gaza. The thing is, they've only opened it for inspections. So it's supposed to take some of the pressure off of the Rafah checkpoint and provide another place where these trucks that are waiting to get into Gaza can go to be inspected by Israeli authorities to be cleared for entry. But they're still not letting the trucks go through this checkpoint to get into Gaza. They're forcing them to go back to Rafa, and the bottleneck still is there. Uh, so you know you're you're not we're not seeing, despite this this development, we're not seeing a big uh, uptick in the amount of aid that's able to get in. The bottleneck remains uh, at the Rafa checkpoint, which uh, is you know has never been well equipped to handle uh, the traffic that's going through it. It was meant to handle people coming out of Gaza to go into Egypt. It was not meant to handle massive truckloads of, of aid coming in or, or uh, of, of stuff coming in from, from Egypt to Gaza. So you mentioned earlier uh, the figure of about 18,000 plus casualties. Uh, what do we know um, about the casualty figures at this point? So it's, I mean, I think it's approaching 19,000. I, I, I'm hesitant to place too much stress on this because I suspect there are thousands more uh, dead than are being accounted for at this point because, of course, most of the hospitals, at least in northern Gaza, are no longer functioning. Uh, the, you know, there are bodies that are undoubtedly trapped under rubble and the ability to uh, to get to them and recover them is uh, is minimal at this point in uh, many parts of the, the territories. So uh, it, it is a pro the official toll is approaching 19,000. We know uh, that the Israeli government has acknowledged basically that this count is is accurate. It says it's killing uh 
about two civilians. This is the Israeli estimate. They're killing about two civilians for every Hamas or other militant fighter uh, that they kill, uh, which is uh, just just a, a shocking ratio. I think the uh, there was an analysis done in Haaretz uh, by an Israeli sociologist that uh, determined that civilians for the first three weeks of the campaign, uh, civilians were made up about 61% of the casualties due to Israeli airstrikes, uh, which for comparison in past Israeli air campaigns in Gaza, that figure has been about 40% civilians. Uh, 61% is, uh, again, according to this analysis, higher than the average civilian death toll uh, in all the conflicts around the world during the 20th century, where it was about 50% uh, civilians killed. Uh, so, you know, shocking, shocking amounts, shocking numbers of civilians that speak to a level of, I think, indifference on the part of the Israelis, no matter how, how many times they say they're trying or the Biden administration insists that they're trying to uh, to minimize civilian casualties. There's really nothing to back that up. Uh, I think also this week there was a, a CNN report on a classified U.S. intelligence estimate that's uh, they were they got their hands on. That that assesses the Israelis are dropping about forty to fifty, forty to forty five percent of the ordinance that they're dropping on Gaza is of the uh, dumb variety, the unguided variety. So these are the you know just uh, kind of bombs that they're not uh, targeted, they're not uh, they're not maneuverable, they're just dropped. Uh, on Gaza and whoever's in the radius, blast radius is in the blast radius, uh, which again is is a percentage that given the resources of the Israeli military and the weapons that they have access to and what the United States is providing them, uh, the fact that they're dropping that many dummy bombs or dumb bombs, uh, again, speaks to a level of, I think, indifference about civilian casualties. We've also learned this week that uh, from the Wall Street Journal, that the Israeli military has begun pumping seawater into the tunnels beneath Gaza. This was something the the Wall Street Journal reported earlier this month that they might do, that they were considering. It's, uh, I think you've referred to it, Danny, as literally salting the earth, which it is. Uh, it is ruining, it will likely ruin whatever remains of Gaza's fresh water supply. It could flush the contents of Gaza's sewage system up to the surface, which would just uh, make the humanitarian situation that much worse. Um, it's being done uh, to destroy the tunnels, to make them unusable, to flush fighters to the surface, presumably along with uh, any hostages that they're keeping below ground. Although even there, uh, I'm not sure that's the first concern on the minds of uh, Israeli leaders at this point. Let's go to Yemen. And there have been Houthi attacks in the Red Sea. Um, Derek, update us on what's going on. Yes. I mean, obviously related to the conflict in, in Gaza, the Houthis have been attacking civilian shipping, uh, tankers, cargo ships in the Red Sea, particularly in the Bab el-Mandeb Strait, which separates uh, the Red Sea from, from uh, the, the Arabian Sea and, and, you know, kind of the Gulf of Aden. Uh, there have been a number of incidents this week going back to the weekend. Uh, there was a French frigate. Uh, in the Red Sea that came under attack by drones. There have been a number of commercial vessels that have been attacked uh, by missiles and, uh, you know, other projectiles that appear to have been launched uh, from northern Yemen. So it strongly indicates, obviously, that, uh, uh, that the Houthis were involved. 
now in response to this, the Israeli government has been threatening to take uh, retaliatory action on its own against the Houthis, which you know would threaten a lot of uh, kind of tenuous regional stability situations there. The U.S. has been, the Biden administration has been reportedly negotiating or, or talking to a number of countries about broadening a maritime operation that's already in place. There is a, a task force uh, that's in place in the Red Sea region to protect commercial shipping from uh, the Houthis to some degree, from Somali pirates, potentially from any you know sort of threats that might uh, present themselves in that uh, in that sea lane. Uh, but the the administration is reportedly kind of you know interested in in greatly expanding or drastically expanding uh, this operation in the face of this renewed threat or new new threat in some ways uh, from the Houthis, and they they may even you know I'm basing this on kind of. Uh, my own reading between the lines of some of the stuff I've read this week, but they may may be talking to the Chinese government about potentially participating in this. China obviously gets a lot of uh, derives a lot of benefit from a calm commercial transit through the Suez Canal and the Red Sea. Uh, so the thinking would be, you know, maybe they would participate in a in a coalition to ensure, you know, that there's no serious disruption uh, to that traffic. I, I have a hard time imagining the, the Chinese government would would come on board with something like that. But um, I do think that there there may be some uh, negotiations or nudging uh, in that direction from from the Biden administration. Now, there haven't been any serious incidents in terms of damage or casualties uh, in any of this, but it has been uh, it does continue to threaten, I think, uh, you know, shippers willingness to use this this sea lane. Um, and, uh, you know, all it takes is one serious incident to really upend things. Thanks, Eric. Uh, let's talk about the Egyptian presidential election. Yeah, I, I just want to, I just, you know, think we should mention it. Uh, it opened on Sunday and ended on Tuesday. Abdel Fattah Sisi is going to win. Uh, the only question is how big a victory is he going to give himself this time around? He's, uh, you know, given himself uh, in the nineties, the last couple of times, um, uh, it may be interesting to see what the turnout is. Uh, in 2014, when CC won his first presidential victory, turnout was in the high 40s. It declined to the low 40s in 2018. This, of course, assumes that you believe the turnout figures, which there's not much uh, reason to believe those either. Uh, you know, no more, no, not much more reason to believe that the turnout figures than to believe the uh, the actual percentages of the vote. Uh, but you know, uh, CC is. Uh, involved, like it or not, whether he wants to be or not, in the situation in Gaza, and he's going to have, uh, you know, to continue to be involved in terms of the humanitarian relief operation and in terms of this pressure that I think is only going to build as the the Israeli ground operation moves further south, uh, pressure over whether or not to allow Palestinian refugees out of Gaza into Sinai, which he wants to avoid uh, for a number of reasons, but you know may at some point become too great. And if the Israelis push it hard enough, uh, you may just see an uncontrolled breakout, which would probably be the worst of all possible worlds for Sisi. But uh, you know, I did feel like we should uh, note that he's in the process of uh, granting himself another term as president. Let's talk the um, Azerbaijan and Armenian prisoner exchange. 
Yeah, this is an interesting development. Last week, uh, the Armenian and Azerbaijani governments announced that they were going to conduct a prisoner swap that they viewed as potentially the first step toward a broader peace deal. Uh, this came somewhat out of the blue. There haven't been uh, many high-level talks of late between uh, the Armenian and Azerbaijani governments. So this uh, it was a little bit of a surprise. They concluded the prisoner swap on Wednesday. So that went over successfully. I think 32 Armenian prisoners and two Azerbaijani prisoners were exchanged at the border. Um, so it's positive development. As I say, the hope or the intention is to build on this to get into more serious peace talks, potentially a meeting uh, between uh, Nikol Pashinyan, Pashinyan uh, the Prime Minister of Armenia, and Ilham Aliyev, the President of Azerbaijan, which is uh, another thing that hasn't happened in, in quite a while. You know, is this actually going to lead to a to a peace deal? I don't know, but it's uh, uh, it, there's been a lot of bleak news in this uh, relationship in you know over the past several months. So this may be a, a move, a pivot toward something a bit more positive. But uh, you know, obviously, we'll have to wait and see. Hello, Prestige Heads. Danny here. And I wanted to tell you about this great product that I've actually been using for the past several months, and that's Aura Digital Frames. Now, you may have heard on the podcast recently a baby in the background, and it is indeed true that I've recently had a kid. But my parents, unfortunately, and like many of us, live pretty far away. But one way I've been able to update them on my baby's life is with Aura Digital Frames. I've been constantly sending them photos of him in all states, crying laughing, what have you. And I can tell they really love it because they constantly ask for more photos. It's really been an amazing way for us to stay in touch and for them to feel like they're able to watch my baby grow up in a real way. It's an awesome way to stay in contact with people you love who might not live super close. And other people agree. Aura Frames was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter. And Fast Company said the simple, stylish digital picture frame can replace social media in your life, which is good for all of you. I know. So with Aura, give the perfect gift this holiday. Visit AuraFrames.com today and get $30 off their best-selling frames with the code PRESTIGE. These frames sell out quickly, though, so get yours before they're gone. That's A-U-R-A frames.com with the promo code PRESTIGE. And as always, terms and conditions apply. Let's talk about um, the possible ceasefire in Myanmar. Yes. Uh, earlier this week, the, the junta uh, ruling Myanmar uh, uh, said that it was engaged in peace talks with the Rebel Brotherhood Alliance coalition uh, that's been since late October uh, undertaking a major offensive, particularly centered in Shan State, although it's spread to other parts of Myanmar, uh, with the, the support of the Chinese government. As they said, the, the Chinese government has been mediating uh, these peace talks. This came as a, a, a bit of a surprise, uh, but the Chinese government did back that up and said, "Yes, we're uh, we're talking." The the fighting, the heaviest fighting, has taken place. Uh, I think a bit closer to the Chinese border than Beijing would like, uh, and so you know they have some interest in trying to quiet things down and, and uh, participating as mediator there. On Thursday, uh, the Chinese government announced that it had its mediation had secured a temporary ceasefire uh, between the rebels and the junta. Uh, now, I have not seen yet any comment from either the rebels or the junta, so I 
uh, a grain of salt might be in order here, but this is uh, you know kind of an emerging story at this point. But it may be that there there may be a pause here in this weeks long uh, rebel offensive that we've talked about uh, here on the show. Uh, we'll have to again. This is another wait and see story, which I you know I hate to do, but uh, I don't really know much more than uh, the Chinese Foreign Ministry announcing. Uh, this ceasefire with neither of the combatants kind of suspiciously, uh, maybe neither of the combatants having said anything yet. Speaking of ceasefires, what about the ceasefire in the Democratic Republic of the Congo? Uh, Yes. So there is, according to the Biden administration, and this does seem to be holding, it announced on Monday uh, that negotiators had secured a 72-hour ceasefire. So should be expiring unless it, get, it gets extended, but should be expiring around the time. We're actually right now as we're recording, but, but certainly by the time uh, people listen to this. In uh, the Eastern DRC, the Eastern Democratic Republic of the Congo, in the, uh, in the conflict with the M23 militia, which is backed by Rwanda. And the, the goal here really more than kind of uh, halting the militia, which has been on the, the advance uh, in recent weeks and, and particularly in the last a few days had uh, taken a, a, an important transport hub kind of town called Mushaki, which is located a bit north of Goma, the provincial capital. Uh, the, the This agreement was supposed to see M23 pull out of that town. I don't know if that's happened, uh, but the main goal appears to have been to reduce tensions between uh, the Congolese government and the Rwandan government, which have been much higher than usual. Uh, the, the DRC is entering uh, the final week of its, or has, has entered at this point, the final week of its presidential campaign. In theory, I'm still not sure that they're going to be able to logistically carry it off on December, but it's scheduled for December 20th. Uh, and that's led to some heated rhetoric back and forth between uh, President Felix Shisekedi, who is uh, fo- running for re-election and has been you know, dealing with the conflict in the East is one of the big, obviously, uh, you know, big uh, issues in the campaign and has leveled a lot of criticism of late at the Rwandan government for supporting M23. And that's, uh, you know, caused some back talk from the Rwandan government. So tensions are are running high. And I think the concern was that, that this uh, M23 uh, situation could finally uh, escalate into a regional conflict that, that really nobody uh, wants so uh, the ceasefire was meant to uh, to kind of provide a window to calm things down. Uh, I, I'm not sure at this point if it's going to be extended or if there will be uh, new fighting, but uh, somewhat of a, a positive development, I guess. Thanks, Derek. And uh, let's talk about Ukraine. But before we do, I think we should take not a victory lap, a victory slouch. Some people mistakenly said that we said Putin wouldn't invade. What we said was that we thought it was a bad idea and we therefore thought it was unlikely. So they were wrong about that. But you know what, Derek? We were right about basically everything about this war, how it proceeded in terms of the stalemate, which is we predicted from very early on in the conflict, the fact that the United States would lose interest in the war, which does seem to be happening, and the fact that the Democratic Party would do things that were quite regressive and even reactionary, as is happening with immigration policy, in order to gin up support from Republicans with regards to the war. So I just got to say, Jake, I think you should insert, you know, uh, acceptance speech 
awards here because everything that we fucking said would happen about this war fucking happened. So we should all be a lot more skeptical about supporting the empire in so-called good wars. Um, all right, Derek. So what, what okay. happened with, uh, Hudson? yeah. <laughs> uh, so, uh, first of all, I, I do want to say, cause I know that you've been uh, worried about this. Vladimir Putin announced that he is running for reelection next year so uh, it's not uh, we've been texting off off well off, i mean off. i i figured you were you know kind of kind of <laughs> advising him a little bit there but uh, yeah he's he's uh, he's confirmed it uh, everybody was asking uh so with that in mind uh volodymyr zelensky uh the ukrainian president went to washington this week uh he spoke at the national defense university on monday and then met with joe biden and congressional leaders on tuesday all to make basically a last-ditch plea for the U.S. Congress to authorize additional military support for Ukraine. The Biden administration has been, you know, after them to do this. He's got this supplemental war funding bill. It's got money for Israel. It's got money for Ukraine. It's got money for border security. Uh, money for Taiwan, I think. Uh, and you know, it's been kind of uh, it's been a difficult slog in Congress. There are. Elements of the Republican Party, especially in the House, that just uh, have taken a, a, a dim view of aid to Ukraine on a uh, on a, an ideological from an ideological perspective. Uh, in the Senate, the holdup appears to be over the nature of the border security funding and how draconian that's going to get. Uh, it sounds like the Biden administration is willing to get pretty draconian uh, to try and get a deal done. But the the upshot is the Congress. It's supposed to go on a recess. Uh, the Senate has, has extended uh, its uh, winter recess. It's not going to leave until, I think, Monday now to try and give some extra time uh, to negotiate this. But the House, I don't know the status of the House uh, at this point. Zelensky, as I say, met with uh, a number of congressional leaders, Republicans in particular, doesn't appear to have come away uh, with any sort of great success. Uh, there was a lot of kind of trying to shame Republicans and, you know, you're you're doing Putin's bidding and that sort of thing. And rhetorically, I don't think that was uh, maybe their best uh, their best gambit. And as I say, it doesn't doesn't really seem to have worked. So that's where things stand. Congress is still, uh, you know, there's still some possibility of compromise before uh, the year is out. But, you know, we're talking about a matter of a couple of days uh, before that will be it for 2020. Uh, three and maybe for good who knows uh, if they can't get anything done before the year ends there was one positive uh, development for Ukraine uh, that emerged at the European Union's uh, members summit on Thursday where members decided or members voted uh, to approve accession talks with Ukraine and with Moldova to opening those talks this was considered up until Thursday, I think, a long shot because the prime minister of Hungary, Viktor Orban, had been dead set against opening membership talks with Ukraine. And, and you know, you need uh, consensus. You need, to, you know, no opposition, I guess, uh, from any EU member to, to make a decision like that. Uh, so Orban was, was, you know, essentially threatening to wield his veto for some reason, and there's a possibility that there was a deal done here. Uh, I'll get into that in a second. Uh, but for some reason, when it came time to uh, have the vote on whether or not to open uh, accession talks with Ukraine on Thursday, 
Orban apparently excused himself and left the room. So he essentially abstained uh, rather than opposing. And the other 26 members approved uh, opening these talks. So that that is a, a pre- pretty positive uh, development from from Ukraine's perspective. Uh, the deal, the, if there was a deal here, I think it uh, it was a quid pro quo. The EU, the European uh, Commission, the executive arm in the EU, agreed earlier this week to release around 10 billion euros in frozen funding uh, that was bound for Hungary that had been held up over concerns about democratic backsliding, rule of law, et cetera, you know, all the things, uh, kind of Orban's authoritarian nature. Uh, they agreed to unlock that. Now, they, they're still holding like 20 billion or so euros in funding that's that's frozen, but they agreed to unlock this uh, portion of it and, and ostensibly uh, under the, uh, uh, the claim that Orban's government had done enough uh, to address EU concerns that they they really had no choice but to release these funds. I, I don't know. I mean, it seems peculiar that you've got this trade essentially happening. There's no obvious quid pro quo, but I think uh, it would be very easy to uh, to kind of work that out in your head. So, um, but whatever the reason, uh, Ukraine will apparently begin membership talks with the European Union, which uh, did not seem like it was going to happen a few even even a day ago, let alone earlier. Well, I'm sure nothing uh, bad will come of that. Uh, Let's update about Venezuela and Guyana. Yes, we've been talking for a a couple of weeks about Venezuela pressing pressing its claim on the Essequibo region, the the western, somewhere between two-thirds and three-quarters of Guyana, uh, which Venezuela has a, a historic claim on. Uh, there was that referendum a couple of weeks ago where the, uh, or, uh, yeah, I guess at this point, about two weeks ago, uh, not quite, uh, where the uh, Venezuelan government uh, asked voters and some of them turned out, not maybe not that many, but some of them turned out. And, uh, all the ones who did turn out or almost all of them uh, supported uh, the government's claim on Essequibo and supported things like opening it up for exploration by Venezuelan energy and mining companies and uh, extending citizenship to people in Essequibo who may or may not want Venezuelan citizenship. Uh, so this has been a, an issue. The Guyana government, a Guyanese government has been, uh, you know, kind of nervously watching this and negotiating, you know, talking to the U.S. and talking to Brazil and other countries in the region and uh, finally agreed uh, to a, a meeting uh, of uh, Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro and Guinea's President Irfan Ali, which took place on Thursday. They seem to have, uh, all I can say at this point is they seem to have gotten along uh, okay personally. Uh, you know, neither one of them slugged the other one, I guess. They shook hands. Uh, but I don't have any indication as to what uh, they talked about or if there was any uh, anything even, you know, in the direction of a resolution uh, to this issue? Probably not. Uh, but I guess the fact of the meeting itself is uh, is noteworthy and at least indicates that maybe they're, uh, they're not going to go to war this week, which uh, is, uh, you know, you gotta got to take the little wins wherever you can get <laughs> Got to take what you can. Uh, speaking of taking what you can, why don't we end on our usual good, good note with uh, talking about climate. And the COP28 conference has ended. And climate change, everyone, has been solved. So I'm, I'm going to try, actually, to to make this not entirely 
uh, grim. Uh, the you know the COP28 summit ended on Wednesday. That was a day later than it was supposed to end. The reason for the delay was because of a heated dispute over the language contained in uh, was to be contained in the summit's final statement. Uh, the initial draft, as it was written up, called for a phasing out of fossil fuels. Uh, this drew heated objections from, uh, as you might expect, uh, countries that make most of their money. Uh, get most of their revenue from the production and sale of fossil fuels, Saudi Arabia being the leader, but other OPEC nations, uh, particularly in the uh, the Arab world, Iran, you know, other uh, you know, other big oil producers and gas producers uh, were were very resistant to this. And so uh, that resulted in another draft that seems to have barely mentioned fossil fuels at all, which then drew objections from number of European countries, the United States, uh, a small island, any country that that is being already uh, affected by climate change drew some objections from uh, a number of African countries as well. So uh, they went back to the drawing board again, and this is why it took, you know, it, it pushed past what was supposed to be the, the close of the summit on Tuesday, and they finally had to have a special session on Wednesday to adopt a final statement that uh, apparently calls, instead of phasing out fossil fuels, it calls for a transition away from fossil fuels, which is weaker language, I guess. I don't you know parse these things for a living, but uh, it does sound a little bit weaker. The way that I can make this not sound completely grim is that, believe it or not, uh, they've done 28 of these summits now. This is the first one in which the final statement has actually mentioned fossil fuels at all. Uh, you might think, how can you have 28 climate summits and only mention fossil fuels once? That's just the pretty way we roll. Yeah, pretty easily as it turns out. Uh, so in that sense, if you want to set the bar all the way at the ground and say, are you at least going to acknowledge that there is a link between the set it below the sea level. Uh, yes, yeah, below the rapidly rising sea level, uh, that you're going to at least acknowledge a link between fossil fuels and climate change, then we've done it, everybody. Congratulations, Danny. I know uh, you are instrumental here, and congratulations to all the listeners. We did it. You're welcome. Uh, and as you say, uh, you know, climate change is, uh, is solved, and we can all move on to the next. Everyone, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you soon. Have a happy holidays. Bye. Happy holidays, everybody. Bye-bye.